Father, we thank you so much for uh, bringing us together. We are we are united not because we're all perfect or because we all have uh, things to offer, but we're here because we didn't have anything to offer. And yet you called us, you chose us before time to be your people. And we thank you, Lord, for the fact that we get to look back in history throughout the ages and see how you have uh, continued to develop your plan for our salvation, even from the beginning, after the fall. And Lord, we, we are in awe of you, and so we ask that we would continue to grow in how we understand you and that we would grow to love you more. That this understanding of covenant theology would not simply be something held at arm's distance, but that we would um, it would flow into our lives, it would flow into our hearts, it would flow into our minds, so that all of us might be transformed to be like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, so what, what, what is covenant theology? It's been a while since we've talked about covenant theology and what it is. Um, or maybe we should back up and say, what is, what's a covenant? What do you guys think? What's a covenant? A contract, okay. It's usually with promises involved. An agreement, mm-hmm. Yeah, mutual agreement. Jonathan? A promise, a deal of sorts. Mm-hmm. Usually it has limitations for one or more parties. And then they have to abide by that covenant, too. He wants it. Right. Yeah. Justin? A human agreement sovereignly administered with attendant blessings and curses. Oh, my word. Wow. Someone did their research. Like <laughs> no, I liked it very much. Um, yeah, there's a lot of different parts to a covenant, right? Part of it is the parties involved, there's promises, there's obligations, there's consequences for failing the obligations, there's rewards for fulfilling the obligations. Typically, you could think of a covenant as a binding contract between two parties, right? It's, it's binding in the sense that there's, there's oaths, it's legal, Right? It's not simply a, a relationship. It's something that's legal and clearly defined with boundaries. Um, but it's also a relational thing. It's not simply, okay, we're going to sign on the dotted line, and, and that's the extent of our relationship. A covenant actually provides the boundaries for these relationships to take place. So the, the analogy I love is a marriage because it's legal. Right? There's legal, legal parts of a marriage where you make oaths, you make vows to each other um, before witnesses. And at the same time, it's not simply just a legal contract between two people, right? It's a relationship. There's love there. And the, the covenant of marriage actually provides the boundaries for the relationship to flourish. Um, and then from the, the divine side, right, God loves covenants. Just about everything he does is structured and, and driven by covenants. So when we've been looking at covenant theology, the point is not, well, let's dissect um, the definition of covenant. The point is, let's look at how God acts and how he works and how we see him and come to know him through covenants. Because that is how we know God. Um, we made the point at some point early on in, in the lesson series that you actually can't know God apart from covenant. It's impossible. You're either in covenant with God through Adam, or you're in covenant with God through Christ. Those are the only two options. 
Um, so we can't simply say that, well, people who are outside of the church, they don't have a covenantal relationship with God. They do. It's just through Adam. It's a covenant of works that has been broken, and thus they are under con- condemnation and judgment. Um, and so we talked about the covenant of grace, right, where after the fall, the Lord said... Um, I'm going to create a covenant with you. I'm going to give you a promise without any obligations on your side. And this is where the Lord starts to do covenants in a way that is, is radically different. Because there are still obligations. It's just we're not responsible to fulfill them. Someone else is. Someone else is responsible to fulfill the covenant obligations on our behalf. Um, and that's called the covenant of grace. We talked about grace and mercy. Um, we talked about uh, the Noahic covenant. Um, and today I actually want to go back to the Noahic covenant for a little while, um, partly to kind of get us back up to speed um, so that we don't just jump ahead to things and kind of spend some time. And there's a few things that we didn't cover when we talked about the Noahic covenant that I think are important and helpful. Um, it's, it's probably, aside from the covenant of grace, it's, it's a very rich covenant. And it has a lot of implications for life in this world. Um, so, as review, can anyone tell me what the Noahic covenant is? What's the Noahic covenant? Or could I, oh, Matthew? That God will destroy the earth again with blood. Yeah, God will not destroy the earth again with flood. In fact, it's, God says that he is going to continue the world. It's not simply that he won't destroy, but that he will, he will continue, the world will continue, all the seasons and the days and the months and the years, they will continue um, on forever. Or at least for a time. Who are the parties of the Noah Covenant? Jonathan? The parties of the Noah Covenant are Noah and his family and pretty much all humanity mm-hmm. and God. Who else? You missed one. You're right. It's between Noah, who represents all of humanity, and God. But God includes a few other people or things, creatures. The entire world. All of it, <laughs> yeah. Basically, the covenant is made between God and everything else. God says, I'm going to make my covenant with you, with your descendants, with the birds of the air, with the fish of the sea, with the creatures on the ground, with the beetles and the bugs and the spiders and the, and the clouds and everything. Um, the Lord makes this covenant not simply between him and Noah, but Noah and all of his descendants and all the creatures and all of their descendants. So this is what we would call a, a common covenant because this is not simply a covenant made with the elect. This is a covenant made with every human. So we would call that a common covenant. And part of that is because we talk about common grace versus saving grace. Can anyone tell me the difference between common and saving grace? Okay. Common grace is given to all. Saving grace is just for the elect. That's part of the difference. Any other thoughts about the difference between common grace and saving grace? Maybe common grace is temporal. It's for this 
earth only and saving grace is eternal. Okay. Yeah, there's a sense where common grace is, is for this world, but saving grace has a lot more to do with the world to come. I think you could describe that as um, one is salvific and the other is not. Common grace does not remove sins. Saving grace does. So saving grace is how is, is the grace of the Lord towards the elect, where he, you know, and through faith in Jesus Christ, removes their sins from them and gives them Christ's righteousness and gives them eternal life. That's saving grace. Common grace doesn't do any of that. Common grace is not about faith. It's not about salvation. It's not about sin or righteousness. Common grace is simply... I'm going to give you blessings that you don't deserve for now. And that for now is kind of important because common grace is temporary. There won't be common grace in the world to come because there won't be anyone to have common grace on. There will only be people who have been saved by God. Um, Common grace is specifically for, for all of humanity and for those who are under judgment because it's a postponement of judgment. So the Noahic Covenant, one of the things that it does is it says, I've just destroyed the world with a flood. I've saved a few, but I'm now going to say I'm I'm not going to destroy the world because of sin for a while. I'm going to preserve this world. I'm going to uh, continue this world. All the seasons will continue. Crops will grow. People will work and live and have families um, until that last day when judgment will come. So it's a postponement of judgment. Um, so the Noahic covenant is not a covenant of saving grace because there's no salvation offered the Noahic covenant does not say if you believe in Jesus Christ you'll be saved if you believe in the promise you'll have his righteousness the Noahic covenant says go live be fruitful and multiply and I will not destroy the world with a flood again So there's a relationship, however, between common grace and saving grace. Um, Simply because they're distinct doesn't mean that they don't work together. Specifically, common grace is what creates the space for saving grace to work. Because God then preserves the world, because he promises that he won't destroy the world again, that creates the space for the elect to grow, to, to be born, and for them to hear the gospel, and for them to be saved. It creates the room for the world to continue so that Jesus Christ can come. Um, And part of the common grace element is that God does not desire that the gospel should be shared with only one or two people. This period of time that we're in before the last judgment is the time where God says, take this message of the gospel to everybody. Because part of his common grace is that everyone should get the opportunity to hear the gospel. To at least hear the words, repent and believe. Or at least have the opportunity to see in creation, right? To be without excuse, as Romans 1 says. Um, But just because the Lord says, carry it to everybody, doesn't mean that everybody will believe it. Only those who receive saving grace, special grace, will receive the gospel and believe. Does that make sense? Do you have any questions on those things? Jonathan, you've had your hand up. So, if the 
It's a covenant of common grace. So it's, it's not for salvation, but it's for life in this world. It's a covenant where God promises, regardless of human sin, to postpone judgment on this world until the last day. Yeah. Um, why did God give the Noah covenant? What's the purpose? In other words, what are the problems of living on this side of the fall that the Noahic Covenant addresses? Any thoughts? It says that man's heart is always evil. Yeah, man's heart is always evil. So that's a problem. (laughs) Because God is just. And God must judge sin. So without the Noahic Covenant which is a postponement of judgment, um, God would be under, he would be required by his character to judge sin right away. Instead, through the Noah covenant, he postpones it for a reason. Yes, that's, that's one danger of living on this side of the world. Um, are there any others? So we could call that right man's man's evil intentions. We could call that, or sorry, we could call God's justice um, a threat to His promises, in a sense, because in order for His promises to be fulfilled, justice has to be postponed so that it can be put upon the man that He promised to send. So He can't do justice yet. He postpones it so that he can pour it out on Jesus. Um, So we could call that an internal threat to God's promises. Man's evilness and God's, the requirement that God must judge sin. But what about, are there any external threats to God's promises? Exactly. The external threat is partly man, but remember Genesis 3.15 where God says, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and the serpent's seed. So Eve's seed and the serpent's seed are going to be at war. Which means that the external threat to God's promises is, well, what if the serpent wins? What if the serpent succeeds in wiping out the line of Eve? And if that happened, right, the world would be destroyed. There would be no way for the promises to be fulfilled. Obviously, we know God could do anything, but the point is that God has to create boundaries to protect the world, to preserve it, so that the serpent can't win, so that mankind can't wipe itself out, so that the seed, the lineage can continue, so that one day Jesus can be born. So the, co- the, the Noahic covenant is not a salvific covenant, but it is its structures, it's the pillars that hold up the covenant of grace. Because it, it eliminates those threats to God's promises. The threat of, well, God, God could wipe the world out again tomorrow because of sin. But he says, I promise to not wipe the world out. Man could wipe himself out because of sin. The serpent could win 
and God says, I'm going, to, I'm going to protect the world. And in fact, God actually does one other thing. I guess we should have turned there already, but turn to Genesis 9. There's another way that the Lord, um, through the Noahic Covenant, protects uh, God's people, protects His promises. So in Genesis 9, I'm going to read verse 1, and then I'm going to read verse 5. So Genesis 9, verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Sound familiar? It should. Uh, and then verse 5, sorry, verse, verse 5 and 6. And for the life blood, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, and increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. So how do these verses help protect or create create space for God's promises to be fulfilled. What do you think? Accountability. Michelle? It, it gives dignity to life and creates a space to raise a family. Mm-hmm. And that if somebody's out there murdering people, then that person needs to be eliminated. And and because if there's no people to have a covenant with, you don't have a covenant. Right. Exactly. If there's no people, there's no covenant. So God says in the Noah covenant, he creates this covenant that has obligations for mankind, right, to continue to be fruitful and multiply so that there are people to have a covenant with. In other words, when God promised to Eve that her seed would slay the serpent, he's promising that through ordinary generation, through people having families and having kids and then their kids getting married and having kids and then kids and kids and kids, all the way down... That is how the promise will be fulfilled. It is through that that eventually the promised seed will come. So God says in order to protect his promises, he creates this covenant where mankind is, is ordered and obligated and driven to continue to have families and to continue to have kids so that one day the promise may be fulfilled. Um, but the other one, right, is that God specifically says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. What does that mean? Ready? It sets the stage for some sort of uh, penal system or justice system Mm -hmm. that is responsible for punishing other men, which is the system under which Jesus is killed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it creates a justice system. Specifically, one that mankind is responsible for. So we just witnessed God judge sin, right, in a grand scale. 
He said, I'm not going to judge sin anymore. But in order so that there will still be lawfulness instead of anarchy, mankind is now given the responsibility to, to have justice, right? To execute justice in their own societies. In other words, being fruitful, multiply, and by man shall his blood be shed are the two pillars of society, if you can think of it like that. If you like Cooper or Kuiper, um, he calls it the three spheres. But basically, God says, let there be families and let there be justice. So marriage and family is one of the pillars of life on this side of the fall, um, which is a common thing, right? It's not exclusively Christian. Marriage is not reserved only for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Marriage is for everybody. Um, And it's a blessing. And it's pretty clear, right, that when the family starts to deteriorate, um, when the family is not upheld, society collapses. It doesn't lead to good things. But when family is upheld, when when the family is protected, society flourishes. And in a similar way, when justice is upheld... When civil government is upheld and knows its place, society flourishes. And when civil government is failing, when it's not preserving justice, when it's punishing the innocent and rewarding the wicked, society is harmed. So these two pillars are set up by the Lord in order for life on this side of the fall to continue and so that it can be fruitful, so that there can be blessings and good things. Um, So Genesis 9 is not just about... You know, his. I, he, I'm not going to destroy the world, but God is also saying, here's how life in this world is going to be structured, and how things can be can be good. Jonathan. So he said that if a man sheds another man's blood, by man his blood will be shed. Mm-hmm. Couldn't that kind of cause a spiral where a man sheds a man's blood and then a different man sheds that man's blood, then a different man sheds that man's blood, and then etc. 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 Until we only end up with one person. <laughs> That's what the Lord is saying is that man shall execute justice. So if if I go and murder someone, it is the state's authority and right to come and put me in jail. And I think this, this passage also shows us that capital punishment is, is biblical. Um, I think Steve. It's important to recognize that it's the unjust shedding of blood. You know, you know, if, if government executes that, they are responsible for that person's blood. You know, if somebody dies in war or in battle, that's not unjust shedding of blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's... It's, it's clear that this is not simply anarchy, that God is saying there shall be rules to society. There shall be justice. Um, that is how life on this side of the fall should work. Um, but the Lord also says a few other things that I, wanna, I just want to touch on in Genesis 9 because they're, I think they're important. Um, so I already said that the Noah Covenant helps address the threat of God's judgment against sin, right? Um, That full judgment is postponed. But turn back to Genesis 7. Genesis 
So in Genesis 7, in verse 1, the Lord said to Noah, Go into your ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. And seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights. And every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. So I think we all, when we, know, when we talk about the, the story of Noah, right, we all think, well, God, he took a pair of every animal. But in Genesis 7, God says, take a pair of every animal, but seven pairs of the clean animals. Why? Jonathan? So, he says seven pairs of clean animals and one pair of unclean animals. How does he divine, de, not divine, define clean versus unclean? Because, like, all of the animals are clean in their own sense, in the same way. So, how does he judge if they're clean or not? That's a good question. What do you think? Anyone else? There's a sacrificial system set up. We know this else, elsewhere in chapter 8. Or, uh, well, yeah, chapter 8 was 20, and Noah built an altar to the Lord. Mm-hmm. So at some point, the Lord revealed, you know, from after the fall, the promise, not only the promise, but sacrifice. That, that the shedding of blood pointing forward. Right, God favored Abel's sacrifice over Cain's vegetable salad. Right? Um, yeah. So Noah is in this tradition of believing the promise and offering up these sacrifices according to the promise to God, and it's pleasing to God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Clearly. Noah would have known which ones were clean or, or unclean. We're not told in this passage. But it is interesting that when you think about the clean and unclean distinction of animals, what do you think of in the Bible? Leviticus. Israel. All right, don't eat pigs. No bacon for you. But go to town on the, on the lamb and stuff. Um, there's a purpose for that. Right? It's not simply that God, when God created all animals, he said, okay, pigs, you're gross and dirty, um, but you know everything else is fine, but just don't eat pigs. Because in, verse, in chapter 9, turn forward again to chapter 9, the Lord says in verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So now wait a minute. First we find out that there's clean and unclean animals. It makes us think of Leviticus, right, where Israel is commanded, don't eat those animals because they're unclean. And now God says in chapter 9, actually, forget that, you can eat all of them. What's going on? What do you think? Why does, why does God do this? Say that again. God assigned the clean animals for his people to separate them from the other people. So it didn't apply to 
Okay, yeah, so clean and unclean was given to Noah specifically, but every animal is given to all people. Right? There's a common aspect where these are this clean and unclean distinction is for God's people specifically. Okay? Dave, I saw your hand. Um, is it kind of associated more with the clean animals were God designated as those who were uh, not opposed to him and the unclean animals were Why doesn't that apply to us today? Because Christ came for the law. And, um, yeah, I, I have to think more about that. But it's, I think he has fulfilled the requirements for us um, in, in the sense of clean and unclean things. I think you're you're onto something in the sense that the clean and unclean distinction is is symbolic. I think there's symbolism there. But let's let's maybe back up a step from simply the distinction itself and why that exists. And let's let's ask why here? Why does God say as they enter the ark that there's a clean and unclean distinction and as they exit the ark there's no longer a clean and unclean distinction? What's that? The new covenant. The new covenant? What do you mean? With Moses. Moses. Okay, maybe. Based off of what Mr. Amos said over there, I'm guessing that the clean and unclean distinction that he says as they enter the ark is because all of those unclean nations that eat the unclean animals are still alive. But after the flood, he's destroyed those unclean nations. So they're no longer alive, and that kind of deletes the purpose of the clean and unclean distinction because there's no other people to distinguish the Israelites from. I don't think that's true because... Noah and his family were aboard the ark, and not all of Noah's family were elect. Because we know that some of them continue on to, you know, they are the ones who then give birth to the rest of the world, the nations that are also sinful. Charlie? Right. But they don't know that, right? As far as they know, this is Noah and his sons who are participating in this covenant. And there's just, you know, thinking about the, the why, the why again. There's, there's so much parallel between this covenant and the covenant of life where all of humanity is wiped out. You have this one this one family that God is dealing with again, just like the one family in the beginning with Adam and Eve. And the language is even similar where in that first covenant, I have given you every fruit-bearing tree. And then over here, I have given you every moving thing. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a parallel here. There's the, the decreation event of the flood. And now God is dealing with this one family that he has preserved 
where Noah is kind of like this new vicegerent. He's this new representative of humanity. Mm-hmm. And the blessings and promises are for him and his posterity, just like they were for Adam. And so because that judgment happened, and in one kind of minimal sense, evil was dealt with, um, not absolutely, but definitely efficiently with the flood, God is now saying, like, once more, I am giving you creation, right? It is, like, creation is still good, and so I wonder if there's, there's something here where the covenant with Adam can inform the covenant with Noah because of just the, the very exact parallels here mm-hmm. in the Indian mandate, right? Be fruitful and multiply. That just so much harping back to that first one where we narrowed it down, here's the one family, this is a covenant family in covenant with God, with Noah and his sons. So it's like, in one sense, this is the church. Even though people would go and apostatize, it's like, this is the church, Noah and his sons and wives. All of them are covenanted to Yahweh as he has now revealed himself after delivering them. And this feels very much like later, like with Moses, Moses and Israel. God defeats Egypt, singles out his people, and then gives them another covenant of life of like, here's what it means to be in relationship to me after the deliverance. Does that... I think, yeah, I think I'm tracking. Um, I think you're definitely right that there are parallels between the covenant of works with Adam and the covenant that God makes with Noah and his descendants and all the world. Um, there's a few differences. You, you mentioned the dominion mandate. It's not present, actually. The fruitful mandate is, but there's nothing about subduing or having dominion. Um, the, the animal aspect of it that we talked about, where God makes a covenant, like you, we, we set it apart like it's unique, making covenant with all the living creatures. But that's the aspect, I think, that is also present in the the, the Adamic covenant. Dominion over the creation is the same thing where he says here in chapter 9 that all of the beasts of the field will fear you. That's that's dominion. That's a a position of authority over them. That they will respond to you in a particular way. So again, I, I still think that that is an echo. So this is probably too much of an aside. We only got like five minutes. Um, that's, that's totally fine. TLDR, my, my short take is that no, it's different. There is no dominion or subdue mandate in the Noahic covenant. And I think it's for a reason. But again, I don't think it's super important right now. Because think about the, the next time that God says there's an unclean and clean distinction, and the next time that God says, actually, no, that's done away with. Right? It starts with Israel. When God creates this covenant with Israel, he says, there will be unclean and clean animals now. And then there's another time when God says, actually, never mind. (laughs) Not never mind, but now that distinction is gone. Do you guys remember when that is? Yeah, it's Peter. Right? As he watches the sheet descend, the picnic, the picnic sheet or whatever, descending from heaven with all the animals on it. And uh, he says, rise, take and eat. And Peter says, well, some of them are unclean, God. And he says, what are you talking about? <laughs> Don't call what I created unclean. Because now it's all clean. There's a reason why it began as they entered the ark and, ex- and uh, stopped as they exited the ark, and why it began as they entered the land and stopped after the land is is done away with, after the Mosaic Covenant is completed. In other words, the ark is holy ground. As they enter into the ark, they are entering into holy ground. This is a holy place. 
a holy place where there is no human, there are no human um, geopolitical powers. There is only God and his people. It's a theocracy. When they exit the ark, that theocracy is disbanded because now it's everybody. Now you're dealing with not just God and his people, but you're dealing with every human and every tribe and every nation and every tongue. And God's saying, here's how life will look like in this side of the fall with, with all of the nations and God's relationship to all of the nations. He's still king. It's not that his kingship is disbanded. But when they enter into Israel, a theocracy is created. The land is holy. And the clean and unclean distinction is reinstated. When the theocracy is disbanded, when the land is done away with because Christ has fulfilled the law, you don't need the clean and unclean distinction anymore. In fact, that's been fulfilled because now we are clean. We have now been filled with the Spirit. We are holy ground. And what used to happen was, if something's holy and it touches something defiled, the holy thing gets defiled. But when Christ came, when he touched something defiled, instead of him being defiled, his holiness made it holy. Same thing for us now, because we have the Spirit. We can't be defiled anymore, because we have the Spirit of God. We're not worried about clean and unclean, because we're not in a theocracy. We're living in this world, in America, And Christ is our king, but we have his holiness. So we are, what happens with Noah is that God says, for this time in the ark, because we're in a theocracy, we're in in a special holy place, clean and unclean will be observed. And that doesn't, you don't need that after after the ark, because now it's common. Now we're in the common realm, we're in the world where everybody exists. Um, So there's a point to it. And ultimately, right, the point is to push us to say, well, we need the Lord. We need the holiness. Life in this world is not going to be great because man is going to shed his blood. Right? Why do we have a justice system? Because we have sinners and murderers out there. Why do we need to, to have the world sustained by, God, by a covenant? Because God's judgment is looming over the world. There is a day coming when God will judge sin. And you're either going to be in the ark with Jesus, or you're going to be outside of the ark, and you're going to be swept away. The only path of salvation is through the promises of God. And thankfully, it's not up to us to uphold the promises. It's not up to us to ensure that the promises are fulfilled. Because God promises, God's promises are upheld and protected by him. That when he makes a promise to save his people, he will do he will move heaven and earth in order for it to be fulfilled. So we don't we don't live in fear in this world. We're not we're not in terror. Uh, we're not in terror that you know climate change is going to wipe out the globe, or nuclear war, or zombie pandemic. Like we're we have confidence in God's promises that He will sustain the world until the last day, and on the last day when He returns, we will be vindicated because we're in Christ. We will be protected from the coming judgment, and then we will dwell forever in a perfect theocracy. There won't be nations in heaven. There won't be kingdoms. There will be one king.
And everyone will bow the knee and submit to him. And we'll get to dwell with him in unity forever. So that's what we're looking forward to. Um, any final questions or thoughts or concerns, complaints? John? No complaints. Oh. Can we also say that there's the motif of baptism mm-hmm. in the ark? Yep. And then there's the motif of baptism when Christ comes and he gets baptized. So there's a, there's a, a change. I guess the question I ask is, okay, so what changed before Adam went in the ark? Then he was in the ark, and then he came out. Something changed between the time he went in and the time he came out. The flood, the baptism. It's, Paul talks about that as Noah's flood being the baptism. Mm-hmm. And then he talks about Christ going into the Jordan and being baptized for the sins that people were committed before. Mm-hmm. So I, I see that as, as the, what's changed is the baptisms that's going on here. Yeah, I have like five more pages of notes um, on the Noah Covenant. I wish we could do it all, um, but I just don't think we we can. And I I think it's probably good to move on. But yeah, I wish we could take the time to th- talk about the 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 flood as baptism. Um, but I think we'll instead talk about it when we talk about the Red Sea in Exodus, um, which is next week. Um, but yeah, there's some. The Noahic Covenant is rich, and there's a lot of beautiful things, not about the covenant itself, but also about the flood and the ark. Um, Yeah, a lot of cool stuff. Any other questions or comments? Awesome. Feel free to talk to me afterwards or at any point during the week if you have more questions. But um, let's uh, go before the Lord in prayer before we get ready for worship. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you that you have saved us, that you have carried us through the waters of judgment. Thank you, Lord, for sending your Son to take upon himself all of the sins of your people. And thank you, Lord, that we live with his righteousness now, that we are protected, that we are made holy, and that nothing can defile us because we're in Christ and we're safe. Lord, may you help us to live this out, to seek to be a light to the nations, to proclaim the gospel to every, every person that all may hear, and to call the world to repent of their sins and to believe in Jesus Christ and to be saved. But Lord, thank you so much that you have protected us, and we pray that you would prepare our hearts for worship this morning. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.